So where are you? You're in some motel room? You just you just wake up and you're in, in a motel room. There's the key. Hi, and welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we're going to be discussing Memento. We're here. I'm so excited. I did it. I've been talking here. Your off, but I cannot wait to talk about this movie. You've got 10 pages of notes ready to go. So many notes. Just <laughs> like I remember. I mean, of course, you have to have as many notes as possible. You have to write them movie. down. You can't see it right now, but he has all these notes written on Polaroids all over his workspace right now. And a few tattoos. Don't believe his lies. <laughs> That's the whole thesis for the whole thing. <laughs> But whose lies? We'll get into it. We will decide. We will make an official yes. final declaration. Maybe. Possibly. It's ambiguous. We'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what? Uh, we have a lot of Nolan-related or Christopher Nolan-adjacent things in the news and on the internet this week. So I'll let you get started on the ones you found. Oh, yes. A veritable plethora. And maybe just we're fully tuned in now where our wavelengths are lined up with with anything that we can spot or it's like that theory where you know how like if you you find something or you see something or learn something and then you go out into the world and it's everywhere like if you get a certain brand of car that you had never really seen on the road before but now that you drive it you see it at every intersection or something right Maybe it's like that yeah and i know there's <laughs> I've a been seeing a lot it, of the, i've been seeing a lot of tennessee hoodies and shirts lately like whenever I go to Target and I can't tell if that's because we're finally free and happy to come out of the woodwork and show support for our team unashamedly, or if I'm just noticing more, more of it now that we're winning. I don't know. I would go with a combination of both, but <laughs> winning cures all ills, they say. Yes, it does. But this is not a Tennessee Balls podcast. I have to roll this. This is a Christopher Nolan podcast. Yeah, we don't. So you can go ahead. <laughs> we don't need to bring that kind of sadness and terror into it <laughs> but the biggest nolan ish item that i saw since we last talked was letterboxd released a list of movies that have the most fans in the year 2022 and they measure that by determining which films are the most in users top four on letterboxd mm-hmm. anyone listening don't if you don't have letterbox basically you can pin your four favorite films to the top of your profile and it doesn't necessarily have to be your top four films of all time it could be i think jake you do your top four that you've watched each month i think yeah yeah the top four the new ones that i've seen yeah. right so it's like the myspace top eight for movies <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah it can change at any time be on notice right right so they just compile this regardless of however users determine their top four. But the top film on this list is Interstellar. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. For as, as excited as you are to talk about Memento, that's probably how I'm going to be for Interstellar. It's going to be great. Yeah. So I was pleasantly surprised to see that. I also looked back at previous years. They've done this since 2018, or at least that's as far back as they link. Okay. And it was interesting. I went back to those years and you can slowly see interstellar climbing the ladder yes. and getting up to the top. And they also broke out lists for 
male identifying users, female identifying users, and non-binary identifying users. And it was interesting to see those there too, but in all three of those other lists, Interstellar was pretty high up. So that's yeah, as uh, yeah, as so, I mean, and you work in this field too, but as someone who primarily deals with a lot of like audience analytics and just analytics in general is a part of their job. I, I really like the fact that they go that deep into who actually uses their services. So that's pretty cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. And then other Nolan films on the list, Dark Knight came in at number seven for the overall list. Inception number 12. I think the prestige was down there, maybe like in the bottom if half. Not, it should be. <laughs> yeah. I think it's definitely in the, the male identifying list. Um, that track i'm surprised that all of these are not male identifying to be honest but <laughs> yeah yeah the only other thing i had to say about the their most fans list was i was really really happy to see revenge of the sith is on there at number 90 it's the only is other that star the wars only film. prequel it's the only prequel and the only other star wars oh. films with the most fans oh, are, besides the original two yeah our empire strikes back at number 18 and star wars at number 78 so Revenge wow, of the no Sith one likes is probably Return of the Jedi. I mean, not as much as uh, Revenge of the Sith, which <laughs> personally, yeah. Revenge of the Sith is my just personal from what it like means to me. My personal favorite mm-hmm. Star Wars film. Yeah. So I feel vindicated. I'm not alone. Or maybe it just means there's a lot of mostly millennials on Letterboxd. Who knows? Yeah, it, does. it kind of skews younger. There might be more Gen Z at this point. I don't know, but yeah, younger. Think we're young, still young. <laughs> I'm on the 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 cusp, I think, of elder and younger millennial. Who know? I don't know. I still feel young, but I know that anyone younger than me does not see it that way. No, no. So I have to. I'm, get, to I'm getting that. there. It's got to be. It's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, yeah. But as uh, as Nolan says, the mortality rate is 100. percent We almost deal with that at some point. Mm-hmm. time moves the same for all of us that is true memento mori uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so to drag this out of the muck and mire let's keep on moving <laughs> <laughs> speaking of interstellar on that list one that i had was apparently the premiere for that movie was on october 26th eight years ago so it's hard to believe that that movie is already eight years old again time we're getting old time is malleable blah 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 but uh yeah just cool that that's it's not a you know big round anniversary but i saw that on social media the other day and thought that was interesting it's relevant Uh, put it in the bucket yes Mm -hmm. and then i did not see it on that day i think i saw it a couple weeks later when it finally opened up in america but yeah great theater experience which i will get more into when we actually talk about that movie yeah and then this isn't an ad or anything, but I saw new stills of Christian Bale from an upcoming movie that he's going to be in called The Pale Blue Eye. It's going to be Ooh. out on Netflix early next year, and it's set in the 19th, mid-19th century. So seeing Christian Bale like that, strong prestige vibes, very strong. So if you like Christian Bale and him doing stuff in the 19th century, it will be for you. Yes, that sounds like a lot of fun another thing that i saw that is uh it's not really christopher nolan related is probably more christopher nolan adjacent we have been talking a lot about film noir lately Uh, the movie we're going to discuss tonight is kind of a neo-noir but the criterion channel which uh houses following and has doodlebug and some other stuff 
of Nolan's does a November series every November yeah. where they resurface some old noir films. And this year, the big lineup that they have is they have some films from Fox. So they've got, what do we have here? Fallen Angel, The Dark Corner, Kiss of Death. I haven't seen any of these, so it's always fun to check out new stuff that I've never seen. Yeah. Um, they've got, oh, He Ran All the Way. That one's uh, really good. Postman Always Rings Twice. Uh, they also have a whole section of Veronica Lake movies. So if you haven't seen Sullivan's Travels or I Married a Witch is fun. That's a pretty funny, uh, it's kind of like a precursor to Bewitched. Blue Dahlia. So they got a lot of, a lot of good variety there coming up. And that's going to be streaming starting November 1st throughout the entire month. And they usually do some other stuff related to that throughout the year as well. Not necessarily in November, but always a great source for older films, stuff that you haven't really seen. There's always something on there that I'll just be flipping around and curious about. And it's always a pretty good bet that you're going to have a pretty good success rate with that as opposed to finding whatever's on Netflix or something. Yeah, well, I'll definitely have to check that out because I'm planning to, at the very least, get a Criterion Channel two-week trial to watch the original Insomnia that we're going to be watching ahead of Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. Yes. So I'm very glad to hear that news. Good streaming service. Oh, yeah. But besides all that, was something you're reading, watching, some other media you're consuming? Um, I have two. I'll go through them real quick. The first one is a new movie in theaters. Uh, it's called Ticket to Paradise. It is the reunion of George Clooney and Julia Roberts after Ocean's Eleven. And the Would whole it Ocean not be 13? Series. Yeah. Yeah. And they play a very bitterly divorced couple who the only good thing they've got going in their life right now is their college-age daughter, played by Caitlin Deaver, who was about to graduate. Yes. Uh, and yeah, she's she's great in this movie. Great comedic timing. And her roommate is uh, Billy Lord, Carrie Fisher's daughter, who also was in Booksmart and uh, some other stuff uh, from the last couple of years. She's really, really funny. A little, little um, movie called Star Wars. A little, 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 little trilogy. Yeah, little, she was little, in little, little Rise of Skywalker action here. But uh, yeah, so the George Clooney and Julia Roberts, they got married. They had their kid. And then they got divorced a few years later, and now they absolutely hate each other. But they have to come together and join forces and be a united front for once when they realize that Caitlin Deaver went on a post-grad trip to Bali. And after a month over there, has decided that she's going to marry a local guy and stay in Bali and give up her dreams of becoming a lawyer. And so they go to Bali with the hopes of thwarting her upcoming wedding to stop her from making the same mistake that they think they made. Uh, years ago and as you would expect hijinks ensue there's lots of heartfelt monologuing it's all very kind of predictable rom-com stuff but it's something that maybe probably should have debuted on a streaming service but if you have george clooney and julia roberts in your movie you pay them george clooney and julia roberts money uh so get that return on investment yes yeah but it, I actually learned that it wasn't shot in Bali. It was shot in Australia, but it looks beautiful. It's great. It's like all beaches and mountains and makes you want to go on a vacation and great comedic moments and everything in it. So it's a good, good, enjoyable time. I would recommend it if you want to go on a little Saturday matinee date, which is what Taylor and I did. 
But then the other thing that I've uh, been listening to is uh, I've been trying to catch up on uh, Sam Sanders. He was a journalist at NPR and he had a podcast over there called It's Been a Minute. And he is now uh, branched out and he is now working at Vulture and he has a podcast called Intuit, which is a pop culture podcast. And he did an episode where he discussed um, the legacy of black people and uh, non-white people and fantasy related to the new Rings of Power show on Amazon because there was that whole uproar about how, oh my God, there's black elves and black dwarves in Middle Earth. Black Numenorians. Whatever whatever we'll do will we do you know uh and so he talked to um a woman who is a phd who actually studies all of that and studies people of color erasure from fantasy and everything and talking about just the history of that and the history of tolkien and c.s lewis and other fantasy writers and their relationship to race and racism in that genre um it's really fascinating conversation and really enlightening uh, and just adds a little bit more depth and nuance to uh that conversation whatever you see stuff online about people getting angry that it doesn't look exactly like the fantasy book that they read in their childhood so but that is uh intuit from sam sanders and that's uh in your podcast feeds if you want to go check that out very good conversation uh and those were the only two things that i had Cool. Yeah, I definitely want to check out that podcast episode because that's something I'm very tuned into being such a big Tolkien fan myself. Yeah. But as for me, over the past couple weeks, I got HBO Max for the year and I've nice. really been geeking out about the whole Looney Tunes archive they've got on there. That's something I didn't know I, I was missing, but now I'm able to <laughs> go through all the classics and I can log them on Letterboxd. It's great. And I can also yeah. introduce my son to Looney Tunes. So I'm yeah. really happy about that because that was What's a huge his part. favorite one. Well, he's really liking all the Bugs Bunny ones so far. Yeah. He's just saying, can we watch a Bugs one? Said, yes. <laughs> Don't mind <laughs> if funny. I do. But just watching Looney Tunes, sitting down and watching that was a big part of my childhood. Just plopping mm -hmm. down in front of Cartoon Network. And then every Same. year they'd have the June Bugs Marathon, which, which was appointment viewing for me and then once they stopped doing that man i was not happy you know, you're not understanding everything about rights agreements and all this other crap so i'm very pleased to have a looney tunes mainline once again and that's one of the ones that hbo max probably isn't gonna take off of the service too so you it's pretty safe certainly hope there. not yeah and then the only other thing of note for me is that I started watching Only Murders in the Building on Hulu with Haley. Nice. Which has been pretty entertaining because it's a lot of, you know, they're starting their own podcast, a true crime podcast, and yeah. some of the stuff about getting a podcast started and the things they say about it, I think I'm able to laugh at because just some, because of some of the things we talk about when we were getting this started and, what, and when we're making things. So mm -hmm. I appreciate that aspect. And it's a lot of good fun and really, really clever and pretty well constructed so far. We're about halfway through the first season, but you get Steve Martin and Martin Short, and that's a classic power couple comedy wise. And then Selena Gomez oh, yeah. is doing some really solid work in there too. That's been recommended to me by like at this point, including you probably five or six people. I just haven't gotten around to watching it yet, but definitely going to check that out now. 
Yeah, and it's it's a half hour comedy. So mm, perfect. Dark comedy. And I wouldn't have started watching it if Haley hadn't pulled me in. So another good call by her. And I mean the algorithm tried to get me for a while, but then yeah, I finally needed some human interaction to get the final push. So that's I think enough there. Let's let's do it. Let's talk about Memento. <laughs> Yeah, today we're going to be talking about uh, Memento, and we're going to be discussing its script and the score to go along with it. Uh, and especially with this movie, reminder, spoiler alert, everything past this moment is going to be talking about anything and everything related to this movie, including its ending and everything related to it. So if you've not seen this movie, pause it, go watch it, come back, listen to our discussion. Uh, but if you have seen it, keep going. Yeah, I mean, we could give the spoiler alert, but... Tom Shaw mentions in the Nolan Variations that it's kind of a spoiler. He argues it's a spoiler-proof movie, so yeah. take take from that what you will. But we're going to be talking about it now, so here we go. Uh, <laughs> Memento was released <laughs> in the year 2000, directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Guy Pearce, Carrie Ann Moss, Joe Pantoliano. It's in color, shot on 35mm, and it's 113 minutes long. So really trying to turn it into the matrix quite honestly <laughs> the imdb synopsis is a nice simple short description that does its best to summarize things a man with short-term memory loss attempts to track down his wife's murderer and i kind of like just how Which, simple yeah. that is because it's technically yes yeah at the heart that's what it is but tom Schoen described it as a film that's harder to just to describe than it is to watch and then yeah. a little bit later in the book he says told forward it's remarkably simple a corrupt cop and a bartender convince an amnesiac to pull off a contract killing so that about sums it up pretty well too with that in mind we can start talking about what we actually thought of it first how did you watch memento this time around jake so i had uh Grand ambitions, Marshall. I was going to get my DVD copy of this and I was going to watch the original cut. And then on the version of the DVD that I had, there is a chronological cut where you can do what we just said and watch it straight forward to kind of see how that goes. But we have been doing a lot of house renovations right now and the uh, saga is ongoing and the DVD drive that I would need for that is locked basically in a closet behind a bunch of immovable bookshelves for reasons that I... It's too boring to go into right now. So I didn't watch it on DVD. I watched it on uh, HBO Max. Uh, so if anyone out there still is looking to see it, you can go find it there. This was the second time that I had seen it. And really, this is, I think I, like Mandela, affected myself on what this movie's <laughs> twist was. Because Taylor was like, I don't want to watch that one with you. And I was like, why? And she was like, because that's the one where he's the one that actually raped and killed his wife, right? And I was like, yeah, I think so. But I don't know. Like, let me watch well no that's not <laughs> what happens not quite not quite what happens but we just conflated the two storylines together i think and then we both had just talked about it so many times you didn't remember we didn't yeah we didn't remember that during the movie so very fitting for this uh the plot of this movie that we didn't remember it but anyway <laughs> so watching this again for the second time was like watching it for the first time for me wow truly and, the, the yeah, proper experience so, yeah, so it was, it was good. Watched it last night on HBO, and uh, it was, was a good experience. Was 
we can get into my my thoughts and feelings on it uh, a little bit later <laughs> but yeah that's good how did you watch it and was this your first time or not so i watched it on the blu-ray making a good habit of that and i actually watched this one as i guess is becoming a, a theme on here i watched this one with my mom as well she was visiting on the weekend that i watched and she had never seen it before so no i said well why don't you watch with me and <laughs> she got to how did that go <laughs> it went fine she uh let's see what were her comments when it's it very interesting a lot to think about essentially <laughs> Much she, to think about. She was able to she's able to keep up with it, but I think, you know, right when the movie ended, she was, I think, still processing it. And this was, oh, I don't know. I first saw it, I think, when I was in college. And since then I've seen it at least two more times. This is probably at least the third or fourth time I've seen it. But the thing is, as with several of of Nolan's movies, I've spaced it out enough to where it's kind of like he when he talks about in variations about reading Jorge Luis Borges's works he says I'll go into stories and not remember fully everything like what the twists are and stuff and mm-hmm. then I yeah. get to it and I remember oh that's what that was so with the way I've done this spaces out enough to where I kind of have that same experience with his movies which is pretty nice because I have the hazy direction of where things are going but not always necessarily the every single beat down pat so yeah yeah yeah, and it holds up for me every time. I I love this movie, so that'll definitely come out here. Uh, and <laughs> it's, I mean, and I love it so much because it's still. I've never seen anything like it. Still, maybe I haven't seen as many movies as your average cinephile. But you know, when you when you see something so unique and it, it always stands out every time you see it, it really sticks and it makes me love it even more. Yeah. So. The next thing I see here on our outline is quick plot summary. We're not going to do that. That's it's not. No, um, that's, <laughs> no, no, no. Why bother? Yeah, we don't need to meander around for 20 minutes <laughs> trying to get something coherent. So piece together everything. Yeah. You just need to watch it and keep up. <laughs> so now that we've gotten past that stumbling block, what, what did you think, Jake? <laughs> what are some of the things that you thought about this movie? So where to begin with this? The first thing on the comment about how it's harder to explain than it is to watch, I was really surprised by how easy it is to follow, even though it is a story that's being told backwards. And I was reminded when I saw Tenet uh, a couple of years ago, the first thing I thought of was, I was like, oh, this is, you know, everyone's comparing it to James Bond or an Inception type thing. But really, this is the closest thing to Memento that he's made in a long time with the manipulation of like rewinding everything and the circular notion of time. And he he only plays with that rewind gimmick right at the beginning, which once I saw it, I was like, oh, he's teaching you how to watch it and how it what's going to come next when yeah, uh, yeah. Leonard shoots and kills Teddy, where he the camera just rewinds and the glasses come back on the blood goes back off of his shirt onto Teddy. The gun comes back him fanning the Polaroid. And the more he fans it, the more the picture fades away instead of develops immediately just disorients you, but also does orient you to, okay, this is the way that this is going to play out. This is the frame of mind that you need to be in for this movie. Now go forth. And then it's just a series of vignettes moving forward where the 
it's not hard to watch because each little short story section is told from start to finish in a linear fashion. Yeah. But it's the segments that are told backwards so that you're able to picture like, oh, well, this scene happens later in the timeline, but then you're seeing something else right after it to where you can know, oh, okay, that's exactly where that came from. That's where he got that busted lip. That's where, that's why his car got, the window got broken. Yeah. The Um, editing is so crucial to tie that together and keep you on the same page. Yeah. The edit is the greatest special effect again and again for real in this movie. (laughs) But it's so easy to keep up with if you're just, if you give yourself over to the, okay, it's a story being told backwards. Once you give yourself over to that, it's easy to do that, especially because the interlocking parts that are told in the whole movie is in color, but the interstitial parts are in black and white. And that part is told just straightforward because it's just one phone conversation and a voiceover narration that is mostly, if I remember correctly, taken from the short story that this is based on. There's a lot of overlapping from the dialogue and the words from that short story to Guy Pierce's monologue there. But that is told in a straightforward fashion, so it's easy for you to keep up with that. But then you're also on your toes thinking, well, why is this relevant to what's happening right now? And then it all just shatters and comes full circle once you realize why you're being told that flashback with uh, Steven Tobolsky. So that was the first thing that I had. But then the second thing is, this is the one of his movies that I am coldest on. And I think this rewatch didn't improve that at all. And it's not that I don't think it's a good movie. I think it's a good puzzle narrative movie. And it's a good mind-blowing brain teaser of an ending kind of movie. And I also don't think that it doesn't have emotional stakes, really. Like he gets a lot of, Nolan gets a lot of flack for not having emotion in his movies. But I do think that if you don't have Guy Pierce in that lead performance, doing all he can to sell the vulnerability of this man who can't remember anything that happened to him five minutes ago, and just like the way that his voice wavers on the telephone and the way that he, he's just so earnest when he finds out any new information that could help him, really. I don't think if you have Guy Pierce in that role, I don't know who you could have gotten that could have sold this and made it believable and emotional. Because aside from that, there's really not a whole lot more of an emotional arc in the movie to me. But I also think this, for better or worse, also solidified Christopher Nolan's reputation as, oh, he's the guy you go to if you want to watch a puzzle box movie, if you want to go to see something that is a movie that is meant to be solved, right? And sure, so that's a, sure. I think that's a reputation that he didn't really shake until, I don't know, maybe Interstellar. But it it's an amazing movie. And like, truly, we were talking earlier, like, I don't think there has been any, there's no attempt to do something like that ever since, because this just set the standard and ran with it. Certainly not um, something that broke into the mainstream, at least. Right. Yeah. And it's not to say that we've talked about fractured narratives before. That's not to say that telling something backward and then another story forward or having a movie that kind of pulls the rug out from under the viewer was anything new at that time. It had been done before the book specifically mentions like fight club, usual suspects, other stuff. And then I'm just thinking of like primal fear, the game, rear window, sixth sense, especially around that time frame. Uh, yeah. This was kind of like the best of all of those that kind of made that new 
mind-bending genre of a movie. And I think that that really, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think the reputation for movies that this movie begat, that <laughs> film is a medium that is to be solved instead of enjoyed. You know, the reason why there's so many YouTube videos about, you know, this ending explained, or, you know, there's this many plot holes in this movie, or how could this uh, happen? Because yeah. it, like, I think this was that the very genesis of that type of way for people to experience film. And not that that's Nolan's fault. I don't think, you know, you can't lay the blame on any one thing or person, but that definitely, like, I think this movie helped kickstart that genre of movie to where people were kind of just like looking for things to pick apart instead of just experience movies. But all yeah. of that aside, I do think having, having read the book, the Nolan variations and having read the big sleep and having seen double identity and like knowing all of the influences that he had while he was making this going into this viewing helped me understand it a lot more and helped me understand the references that he was trying to make to what came before him and what he was trying to do to play with the medium a little bit. And so that was a lot of fun to do, to watch, especially with the insurance adjustment portion of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other thing I'll say before I'll hand it off and then we can go to some other different topics is this is both funnier than I remembered and a lot, just a lot more sad than I remembered. Um, right. Like when he has the mistake, he gets the wrong hotel number. Yes, that's number one on the, he, on the humor list for this one. For me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. And then the, I mean, it's not funny, it's kind of cruel, but the motel owner who's the, the mob heavy guy from Batman Begins yeah. charging him Art for Boone two rooms. Yeah, that guy just charging him. He's like, yeah, you seemed okay with it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, at least you're being honest about ripping me off. Yeah, there, there's some humor here, but that, bit where he mistakes the six for the nine on the hotel room yeah is the closest that i think there is for like a joke in any of his movies for a really long time and so i thought that was funny <laughs> i was like oh that's i laughed that's interesting <laughs> i legitimately had forgotten about that and then yeah i laughed too i was like oh man <laughs> i forgot about this mm. yeah but i guess uh yeah I, you're having me scrambling i'm trying to keep up with all the points you're making because i took notes on plenty of this stuff too i guess i'll start with the plot holes and just with a movie like this it's almost like the textbook definition of let no one pay for the cab okay because like on the wikipedia article for memento at the very oh, bottom yeah, there's yeah, an yeah. external link to an article that came out sometime in the early 2000s on some site that said here's all the plot holes in memento and they say the first one is Leonard knows and or remembers that he has a condition. How does he do that if he can't form short term memory? And, you know, like I could put an easy explanation in there. So, okay, maybe it's just simply mental, like he said it was for Sammy, and he's just repressing a bunch of stuff, or he can be conditioned and he remembers that way. But I'm not too concerned because if it's a problem for other people, you at some point you have to go along with the conceit of the movie. It is what it is. You know, you can yeah. reasonably I'm, like suspend your disbelief enough to go along with it. And if for some reason you can't think about it too much, I, I read another comment today somewhere that it was like, well, actually, my problem with Memento is like, how would this guy not be institutionalized? And it's like, OK, there's analyzing things and then there's doing too much. Yeah, there's just like overthinking it. So I have a yeah. big bold all read, caps note that says, let no one pay for the gab. OK, have you read Ebert's review of this? I don't think I did. 
No. Because you basically said what he says in the opening paragraph. I have it pulled open here. Oh, that's and he, high he praise. Opened, oh my God. He opens it up with, uh, he says that he has some reader questions about the movie. And it says, although I love the film, I don't understand one key plot point. If the last thing the main character remembers is his wife dying, then how does he remember that he has short-term memory loss? And then he says that he's got several readers that have asked the same question. And then he says, they may have identified a hole big enough to drive the entire plot through. Perhaps a neurologist can provide a medical answer, but I prefer to believe that Leonard, the hero of the film, has a condition similar to Tom Hanks's brain cloud in Joe versus Volcano. Leonard suffers from a condition brought on by a screenplay that finds it necessary, and it's unkind of us to inquire too deeply. <laughs> Which is pretty much the way I feel about this and the way yes. I also feel about Tenet and the way I feel about anyone who tries to like really nitpick at it. I mean, so many movies, so many, like not even just Nolan films. Mm -hmm. There's so many movies where, yeah, if you scratch it just a little bit, sure, you can scratch the artifice off. And so plenty of movies do it better than others where you're able to buy in and suspend your disbelief. That's just the experience of watching a movie. Yeah. So. So, yeah, I mean. At some point, you guys be like, okay, I'm watching a movie. Sure, there's these other things that if this were literal real life, sure, this might not make sense. But you go to a movie for that escape to be fooled for a little bit, like we've talked about before. So just give it some space, let it breathe. You know, it, it really only becomes a problem for me if it's like super obvious and super crashing in. Otherwise, I'm pretty, I'm able to enjoy a lot of movies where maybe, yeah, you could make these little these little nitpicks or these bigger revelations that are like, Oh hey, yeah, this really doesn't work. So yeah, I wanted to get that out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. But with the very first thing you said with, it's actually really fairly easy to follow. No one acknowledged that in the book too. And I noted it as well. It's kind of ironic that the fact that from a script standpoint, Nolan wrote this all the way through. So he wrote it in the order that it is filmed as opposed to with following we've said before he wrote it chronologically then he just chopped it up and put things out of order so it for me it kind of makes the film feel more coherent in a narrative sense it kind of holds together because the form follows the function if i'm using that phrase correctly which makes me stumble all the time but no one's quote about it was with memento i thought i have to write the way the audience will watch it it's actually the most linear script that i've written truthfully you can't remove one scene. You can't because it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. The connections are so mm -hmm. ironclad. There's so little yeah. room for maneuver in terms of changing it editorially. And Tom Cho noted it as well. He says the universe of Memento may be one of pure tumbling chaos, but the storytelling is a model of clarity with Nolan using all the means at his disposal to nudge our memory and reassure us that we are on track. So that's where the editing comes in. And the editing is, again, so fantastic. It structures the whole thing, but also the silent cuts that show memories. It just cuts away with no dissolves, no harp music, none of those tropes. Yeah, just very immediate. Yeah. And Nolan says that he borrowed it from the Thin Red Line. And another recent example I've seen in the past few years is This Is Us, the NBC drama, does an amazing job at doing this for memory. It's in such a powerful mm -hmm. way. So mm -hmm. in other words, Nolan talked about it in the variations and said that works so well because when you try to remember someone, it's always the small details that to me became, yes, that's how a memory works. It doesn't come in black and white. There's no way you dissolve. You just cut. So I really think he's right when he talks about that. And 
another thing with the editing and how things kind of build on each other. One thing I was thinking of after our discussion about following was like the characters being something that happened to the story instead of the story being something that happened to the characters. And what you said about right. you felt like the movie could have been edited chronologically and not been too much different. So I've thought about, oh, yeah, there's the thing that they talk about in the variations about Dodie Dorn, the editor for this film, mentioning to Nolan that I think they were discussing the sixth sense and and she had said that the twist made everything before it better. And so looking at it through that lens with following the twist that happened, don't necessarily make it better because again, like you said, it could just be done another way and still kind of be had the same relatively same impact. But for this, there's no doubt that the twists that come out. Yeah. Like, yeah. Make everything better. Like each twist heightens things. So like when you find out Natalie's using Leonard and then Teddy's reveal at the end, to like oh we've done this all before it's um it's honestly yeah. like the whole film is like one long twist because every scene you get new information that constantly recontextualizes or alters what, you what you've saw. already seen so in that case mm-hmm. it's yeah the whole thing all the way through every scene is the twist made everything before it better and then with with the noir stuff I had what I thought was a pretty great epiphany Leonard's trying to break out of a system in this movie and that system is his own mind he's got to break out of the (laughs) everything that's holding him back or or try to somehow beat it well with the the noir stuff too like obviously the double indemnity stuff that i connected obviously it's the insurance plot but the whole story for double indemnity was you know let's commit the perfect murder and this he's the perfect fallback person for it because he takes pictures of everything he takes pictures of teddy's body he takes pictures of everything that goes on with him. So anyone could just look at him and be like, oh yeah, you did this. This is your fault. And then he wouldn't even remember it. He would just keep going. It's the the perfect noir, like fall guy protagonist. Yeah, yeah. On the photos, I actually have something about that, but that's for later. <laughs> but basically those being the facts that he talks about. But I guess with the photos, we can talk about the unreliability of memory, which is... Just the pillar yeah. of the whole film. The genesis of it, yeah. Yeah, because in the variations, the, the chapter on this is, the theme for this one is time. And Nolan opens the chapter giving a story about when he was living in London. He was walking home, saw a woman getting mugged, and started going to help her. And another random person showed up to help stop the guy. And then he said, Christopher Nolan says, he went back to his flat and his brother... Jonathan was visiting him at the time and he told his brother about that. And then he says, the thing here is I tell that story these today and I, for the life of me, like I'm convinced that Jonah was at the flat and he wasn't there, but he tells it and he swears he was there. He was like with me when it happened and he saw it and we helped this lady out. And he said, some issues you can verify one way or another, sort of figure it out, but a lot of them you can't. And that's why people talk about recovered memory syndrome, because the truth is our memories don't work the way we think they work. And that's what Memento is all about. So we have in Leonard, this character who in both a short-term sense, definitely can't create any new memories. And even his long-term memory is unreliable as, as the film delves into, but the, what I'm trying to get to here is the scene roughly halfway through the movie, Teddy and Leonard are having a meal in a diner and Mm -hmm. Teddy goes in 
on Leonard saying, you can't trust a man's life to your little notes and pictures. And Leonard responds with, no, facts, not memories. That's how you investigate. That's what I used to do. He says, memory can change the shape of a room or the color of a car. It's an interpretation, not a record. Memories can be changed or distorted, and they're irrelevant if you have the facts. But in his case, except when you forget to make a record of something, like when he supposedly kills the the real John G the first time, or there is a record, uh-huh. but it's withheld from him. But that's basically this whole, that speech is Nolan's entire thesis. And Leonard really, really speaking for him there. And another quote from early in the variations was from director Nicholas Rogue, who was talking about Memento, the, uh, the slipperiness of time when it involves memory. The feeling of it's all true, but it wasn't like that. He's got that on film somehow. It's a very rare thing. So yeah, like how you're, like if you think back to, I don't know your earliest memory or like your fifth or sixth birthday or something. Like at this point, you've remembered it so much that what you're actually remembering is your memory of a memory instead of the actual thing that happened. Ooh, becoming Funes. And then how much? Can, yeah, and then how much <laughs> can you actually rely on that to tell you? Yeah. And Memento talks about it a lot, but it also shows it with yeah. the thing that I I honestly never caught, like through the, the several times I've seen it, that I had to go back and find a YouTube clip of when there's a, a cut to Sammy Jenkins in whatever home he ends up in. There's just like a little handful of frames for just a flash and it flips over to Leonard. And it's kind of like a clue that, you know, maybe Leonard's not remembering this properly. Mm-hmm. so you know how could he remember him in the home you know sure yeah so just not only in the words but in the pictures too this movie's trying to tell you hey here's what memory is really like it does that a couple of similar cuts in terms of things that may or may not be real like at the very end in the end monologue it does a cut to him lying on the bed with his wife but he has all his tattoos and we yeah. know that's not a thing that could happen because she's dead so it really plays with because the entire pov of this movie is leonard like that's the only one we see we're on this ride with him the whole time so any information we get is filtered through his lens so we have to we just have to make of it what we can and try to figure it out along with him and including all of all of what we are shown and what are some other things plenty of notes to go around (laughs) other scattered things i've got I said while we were talking about following that I feel like following was Nolan's nastiest movie. And I retract that statement. I thought you might. Because I thought you might. Of the, I completely forgot about that. I'm going to use you scene with Carrie Ann Moss. Like exactly. Gutting and devastating. Vicious. Just wants to help. And like, he has no clue that this woman is trying to hire him to kill someone. And just the, the tonal whiplash of her yelling at him and swearing at him and goading him and hitting her. And then the very next scene you see, which is technically a thing that happened before all of that. Right. She just walks in like nothing had happened and just is very nice to him and very, she sells him a line about who actually did that to him supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. But in the first scene too, like right after he actually does hit her, it's like not even two minutes before he can't even remember what happened and she walks in and he's just like oh what's going on and yeah just great fantastic performance uh from carrie ann moss there also to get two matrix alums in the year 2000 
in an indie film. What a what a casting coup. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, I think they shot it in 98. And I don't I don't know when the, the Matrix. Finished oh, filming. Yeah, that is I, true. I would assume the Matrix had already finished filming because then the Matrix came out in 99 and it was a yeah. you know, had to have a lot of post-production given what it was. So I would hazard a guess that it was complete. And they yeah, they're definitely post Matrix from from their work in it yeah her and uh her and good old joey pants (laughs) yeah he's so good in this too like the oh he's amazing yeah other references to nolan's own work the uh what does he say the concept of obsession uh so you got that in the prestige uh where he says that's who you were it's not who you've become because he's been so obsessed with with the idea of revenge um Mm -hmm. I'm chasing this guy. No, wait, he's chasing me, which is very evocative of following. This definitely feels like a very logical next step from following to whatever Nolan's next movie would have been. It still has some black and white photography. He's got the same composer and the score sounds a lot like the following score to me. uh, And it's used to the same effect uh, sparingly. And oh, the test that... um, I'm forgetting, is it, what's the, the, the insurance guy's name? Uh, oh, you still can't remember Sammy Jenkins. Remember Sammy Jenkins. You need to get that tattoo now. I need to get that tattoo. I'm joking, but maybe you really yeah. need to get it on your on your. Uh, the Sammy Jenkins test that he does reminds me of the totems that they use for Inception uh, that they would later do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of the stuff that he would go on to use or some of the, the things that he had in his previous movies were already there. Yeah, a couple of the things I noted were, from a small little detail standpoint, the fact that Natalie sends Leonard off to the same place where he killed Jimmy to go kill Teddy is a bit like in Dark, The Dark Knight when Harvey takes Gordon's family to the place where Rachel died. To, Ooh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of a a forerunner there. And then a few things in, in the variations where they touch on kind of memento's influence going ahead uh, obviously on insomnia no one says it's about the distortion of thought processes with an unreliable narrator very subjective experience he said he wanted to get into people's heads the way he had in memento and then there's interstellar where tom Schoen says the tesseract is like an eternal hall of parental regret like leonard shelby's mm-hmm. loop, looped life it has the timelessness of trauma endlessly relived but unlike the limbo into which Shelby finds himself cast, Cooper is not entirely without agency. Yeah, Cooper can at least do something there. But the biggest yeah. discussions they say for influences, they tie it directly to Inception when they're talking about that. And Nolan kind of just talked about he had the experience of doing Memento, which kind of broke a lot of rules or did things differently. And yeah, yeah, he said, I felt strongly that there was a big scale version of that. I felt strongly I could make that work in a bigger way on a bigger budget in a bigger world. And uh, we'll get to this, you know, in the book, but he had just come off making the dark Knight a billion dollars at the box office. And so he had carte blanche to do whatever. And so this is definitely, if that's what you're going to do, that's definitely the time to do it. And Sean also notes that inception does a lot of the same themes that memento touches on with time, memory and exile. But this time it's kind of, it's like the apotheosis of things since he has this team he's he'd assembled through his years and his career and some of the life mm-hmm. experience, the emotional core of, you know, a four-time father and the confidence you get from making this one of the most massive hits of modern times. 
So, yeah, I liked uh, seeing how much how big this film is for the rest going forward. It's really cool. But I also wanted to actually take a moment when you're talking about Carrie Ann Moss. Might as well talk about Natalie as a character because I, I. Yes, I was going to really, bring that up. <laughs> yeah, I really um, focused on her story a little bit more and thought about it more than I have in previous times. But she's really a, a great foil for Leonard in terms of she's also on her own revenge journey because Leonard kills her boyfriend, but he doesn't know that. So she's trying to figure out what's going on if you think about the story chronologically. Because Leonard shows up in Jimmy's car and suit, and she's like, "Wait, what the hell?" And yeah, yeah. Then she like, figures oh, out how someone to, else. Yeah, yeah. So I had, I had a little bit of a roller coaster. My notes were, as I read through the script, just to kind of slow things down. I was up and down on her, like, well, obviously she's really horrible. That scene, that speech is just completely just, oh my god yeah bad but then great, i was like great well, acting showcase but just harrowing yeah but then in my head i was like well but unlike your like typical femme fatale she does at least have some justification for these actions because like teddy and leonard teamed up killed her boyfriend and now she's on the hook for her drug for his drug debt mm-hmm. so like there's some pressure there and that she's gotta solve both of those problems or address them but it's kind of parallel to leonard so it's it's tough to tell if she kind of softens at all toward leonard like with the bedroom spending the night after the, yeah after she really goes in on him yeah like does yeah. she really realize he can't remember anything and that maybe in a way he's not really responsible for jimmy's death being you know how he got maneuvered into that and i noted right for that this is it this is me being befuddled and seduced by the femme fatale i've turned into <laughs> walter neff but then i got to yeah after you read that speech again it's just so mean She's rotten all the way through. And then, it's, yeah, then I say, God damn it. After the scene in the bar with, uh, with her giving him the, the, that the yeah. And then she's like really shocked. Like, Oh wait, he really doesn't know. Then she brings him to her house. And then once she returns after getting a visit from Jimmy's like supposed bosses, then she's really mad. So is that just like an emotional outburst? Cause she's really stressed and she's like really, really under it because it was a whole lot of money. And, I'd be freaking out. And then I tell myself in my notes, why am I like this? Why am I, why am I talking about? I don't know. So I guess, I'm, yeah, I'm Walter enough trying to give her the benefit of a doubt, but does she really deserve it? I'll let you answer that question. Cause I don't think I arrived at an answer. I don't know, but I was the thing that I, I thought most of about her was also, it ties into Leonard's wife and then it also ties into I don't even think she has a name the prostitute that he hires to just lay next to him Another and wake him up by slamming the door so every woman in this movie is either one fridged and dead so if, if anyone listening doesn't know what fridged is it's a trope where a woman is put into danger the first instance of this i can't remember where it came from was she was literally put in a fridge <laughs> and it was only done so in order to spur the male hero into action so if if a woman only exists in a movie to get the male hero to do anything fridging so his wife is fridged and dead Natalie is just a horrible, may have some justifications for her actions, but is clearly this movie's femme fatale. And then the other person is a literal prostitute who does not have a name. So he's like, and, and that combined with following 
I feel like all our boy Nolan is uh four for four for not really writing any great woman characters. Uh, <laughs> but like yeah. with this genre, it does play with the conventions of the genre. But again, if you're doing so many new things with playing with how the story is being told backwards or forwards and just toying with their expectations, like you could have done something a little bit different, but that also is a a thing that would dog him for his, a lot of his career. And again, I've mentioned insomnia before. I don't know if that changes with Hillary Swank's character. It's been so long since I've seen that movie. So I need to I'll be excited to revisit that next week. I but, have a, I have my opinion um, and answer, but yeah, I'll, I'll wait for when we get there. Yeah. Although that plot is set in motion because a teenage girl was murdered. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. See, I don't so, know, man. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he hates women, but like a lot of the stuff that he writes is just very stereotypical. Oh, the woman's going to die or this is going to happen. But yet his work collaborator is his wife. A lot of times that she produces a lot of stuff and even co-writes some stuff sometimes. So very, very interesting dynamic at play here. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, I would say Natalie's a bit, that's a little bit deeper than I guess your typical femme fatale because she's not solely motivated by just money or being just a bad person. Oh, I forgot. But yeah, uh, but, old, but generally you're right. Sam, yeah. I forgot old, old Sammy's wife, uh, where whether or not you believe the interpretation of the ending was a real person who tried right. to bluff her husband and then ended up just basically letting her husband kill her. So the tragedy. Uh-huh. He plays that scene so well too, old uh, Stephen Tobolowski. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just the the smile sitting back down in the chair and then getting back up, giving the insulin like a perfect little goldfish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I guess we are going to, we'll keep noting our, uh, our thoughts on, on women and Nolan movies, but should we assign a grade to it? Does he get a, maybe a D plus C minus at best here? Oh, I don't know. Man. Really generous. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Won't have to make that a thing, but again, we're uh, we're not blind to it. Checking our privilege. (laughs) Justice Uh, for Georgia Fox. Old Sarah from CSI. Yeah. (laughs) One more thing on the the women characters, though. The other thing I noted that is more on the tragic, sad side was in my notes. I was like, does he hire that prostitute woman every night? Just like for companionship and or to make sure that he wakes up in the middle of the night if he has to go do something because if so then that just adds another layer of sadness to that character just looking for human connection but also he needs to have someone there to because like, i can't imagine doing all that by yourself like how do you not have someone to help you with any of that sure so I just having her there to make sure he wakes up yeah i didn't get i didn't get that vibe from it at least at least not an every night thing but i did have the realization when I was thinking about it, that was um, I'd forgotten about the scene where he burns his wife's things. And then, Oh yeah. Yeah. My takeaway once I really thought about that was that's kind of Leonard, maybe trying to condition himself. He's trying to condition himself to remember that his wife is dead and that she's gone, but he's, he can't do it. Cause he asked himself like, you've probably done this before, but you can't remember to forget, yeah. which is a, 
such a ironic line, but the conditioning, I was going to say, I thought about not too heavily, but it introduces the question of whether Leonard in the Sammy Jenkins story mentions that Sammy should have been able to be conditioned, even if he had this, this condition, the anterograde amnesia, but the way he as an insurance investigator was able to deny the claim was that Sammy wasn't able to be conditioned. So it showed that his malady was a mental psychological block that he was maybe traumatized right. by whatever happened to him and it affected him so bad. It was basically kind of some PTSD that he was forgetting things and couldn't have any short-term memory. Whereas if it was physical, like there's actually some damage to the hippocampus that was blocking formation of new short-term memories, then, then you should be able to be conditioned, at least in the world of the film. I didn't look up any of the science behind right. it. I would given Nolan's pension for detail, I, it has, you know, the ring of truth, I suppose. So in that context, if Leonard's trying to condition himself, is his condition actually physical? If conditioning can work on him, well, you would think other things might be able to work too. Right, right. Let's see, some other things, some other things. I think uh, there were some little wrinkles and into, say, the genre expectations and, and some tropes that I noted out, like with time, you know, normally that's the big enemy in Nolan films, but Leonard has that, the line of, if I can't feel time, how can I heal? So in this case, normally you're trying to escape the consequences and, and the feeling of time, but the protagonist here, Leonard, he wants to feel it. He needs to feel it so he can move on, but he can't. And then with revenge, the fact that Nolan describes this as a revenge fantasy in which the character cannot remember his own revenge. So it touches again on something he said, Nolan says later in the variations about what good is knowledge if it brings no profit to the wise. And also with that, Leonard kind of contradicts himself at one point, in my opinion, because at the end, he's telling himself he's not a killer. Uh, he's not a bad person. But earlier in the film, later in the chronological timeline, he tells Natalie that it doesn't matter if he remembers his revenge or not. It doesn't make his actions meaningless, just as long as it happens. So which one is it? You hold up that mirror and lie to yourself or do all the things he's done that Teddy says he's done, but he can't remember still hold weight. Does that make him a killer? And then right. does it like he got his revenge? Does it matter that he got it? And with the, with noir things, not really the wrinkles, except for the, he's trying to break out of the system, his own mind. I thought it was really great how you still get the beats and Sean mentions this in the book. You get the beats of a conventional narrative structure, even though they're ordered, they're structured to be shown in reverse order. So Natalie's intro is for us as an audience is in that diner and she pulls on his jacket and says, you don't remember me, but, and then moving forward in the film, she then turns on him, but in the chronological narrative is the other way around, but you still like get introduced to this character. You start to trust her. She's being nice. She's helping him. But then it turns out she was actually using him and you're going yeah, backwards it's in time. Perfect inversion. But yeah, but it still hits the beats. It's, it's great. I might say another thing we can touch on just briefly is like the, again, circularity and recursion talking about this, what we've done for the past few episodes, you know, moving up that narrative spiral. We come back, not quite exactly to where we started the story, not the actual scene, but we do end up <clears> in the same physical place with a John or a Jimmy G dying. And at the beginning, like double indemnity, we see the end of the story first, and then we see how we right. got there in like the most, 
direct fashion by stair-stepping it back down and playing a recursion with all the repeated parts we see, the verbatim repeats of lines in the script, and then reading the same notes on the Polaroids over and over again that drills them into our minds, you know, don't believe his lies. She has also lost someone. She will help you out of pity. And then I also thought the entire structure of the scenes being shown in reverse is kind of like one of those infinite zooms you see. So like you zoom in on this scene and then we keep going and there's the next scene and then we keep going and there's the next scene. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like the poster of the film in real life. You have the Polaroid inside the Polaroid inside the Polaroid. And if you keep zooming in, you'll see the different things. And on Memento Mori that I mentioned last time was that in that story, Earl is described as in his hospital room, making his way back to bed, flops down, seals his eyes shut, and tries to sleep. Then once he wakes up in like 10 minutes, it starts all over again. He's just going through the same loop of things, kind of like Groundhog Day. And then in the book, Tom Shaw mentions that in the context of Memento, you start out with Leonard killing Teddy and it ends with Teddy telling Leonard what's been going on with him and Leonard setting up the actions that will eventually lead to him killing Teddy. So Tom Schoen says Teddy and Leonard are doomed to tangle over and over again, tumbling in an hourglass every time the film is watched until time immemorial. So it just, yeah, has that, that loop that it's kind of stuck in. So a lot of those things I noticed here and thought were pretty good. Yeah. That has a perfect ending. Well, it's the final line of the movie, but technically if you, it's the one that comes first in the, the chronological order of events. Now, where was I? Yeah. Which mm-hmm. loops perfectly to the first thing you hear in voiceover, which is him in the hotel room saying, so where are you? Uh, yeah. As a just perfect call and response thing for that character there, which I thought was really, really cool. Definitely. I think we're getting close, but not quite there because... I did want to shout out the score as well, which I think I made a mistake when we talked about following. I'll admit it. I think for this movie was the one where Nolan told David Julian this should be the, where Nine Inch Nails meets John Barry. But I think it applies to following too because they're it so did similar. Apply some notes. Yeah, but they both have the usage of it at key important moments. Like I think this one still uses it pretty sparingly. The bones that it stuck out the most for me was the black and white portions where he's on the phone and you're still the audience is trying to figure out the information that he's got as he's moving forward and then it yeah it keeps to, you on edge exactly yeah because it wasn't too too noticeable like it this, there's definitely a score throughout the movie but it's a it's not overpowering and it's not too too noticeable all that much yeah david julian talked about how with those first two, there was kind of certain sounds or just generally there's certain sounds that no one wants to get with his films as opposed to talking about specific melodies and things. And in the case of following and Memento, he said following, there was a ticking, which we heard when we talked about that. And then he said for Memento, it was more like a lot of ominous rumblings and it's kind of stuff in the background swelling up and keeping the atmosphere. And I really did enjoy how like the visuals and the editing the score orients you as well to knowing what you're looking at. Like it has a distinctive sound for when you're watching the black and white sequences. And then it goes back to something a bit more, Oh, maybe like ethereal and chill when you're in the color sequences. And I just thought it was integrated really solidly. And then you could definitely tell that uh, he had some money to work with David Julian did in terms of like the equipment. Cause I noted with following how it sounded like a cheaper synth. Again, not that since, 
inherently are bad or anything, but you could tell that maybe it was a, he just used probably what he had where he was able, I think, to use something a bit more fancy on this one. And the last thing I've known about the score was that David Julian was quoted in the Memento Wikipedia article. I don't know what their source was and what they linked to, but I think that's where I saw it. He says it was kind of the whole score is really Leonard's theme, which I thought was really funny in context of once Nolan gets to Dunkirk, he kind of tries to have music run the whole time and be like the entire theme of the movie running the whole time. So the fact that David Julian says he did that here is kind of cool. But I really like the theme that plays kind of at the end. You would notice it most like when Leonard's driving away. I thought it was really good. And again, maybe not the most listenable thing on its own, but the actual soundtrack album has some really great songs on it, too. It has the score and the inspired by songs. And let's not also forget David Bowie on the credits. Oh, fantastic. That and uh, did you notice the uh, after the end credits after that song it says copyright? I remember productions. <laughs> Oh man, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and originally they wanted to use Paranoid Android by Radiohead as the credits song, but they couldn't get the rights. I can, I can see that too. Oh, yeah. absolutely. There's a YouTube cut of it because I, I looked, I saw it out and someone did it. But Was also, this the one that he, that he holed up and listened to a lot of Kid A while he was writing it? No, uh, OK Computer. OK Computer. Yeah. Which was funny. He said, I like, I listened to it so much, but I couldn't, still couldn't remember which track came next. Right. Which, again, it's kind of weird because that's the experience I have listening to OK Computer. I love the album, but I can't tell you the track listing for some reason. I just listened to it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's this one. And it's this one. So, anyway, I just thought it's a nice little flip with the credit songs because eventually in The Prestige, David Bowie appears in the movie. And mm-hmm. then you have. Not a Radiohead song, but a Tom York song over the credits. So he eventually got his Radiohead fix. Nolan did for his credit song. Hooray. I guess the other thing I'd like to touch on before we go to our, what really happened is the sense of the tactility of things. Sean mentions in the book, the word that kept coming up was tactile. Nolan wanted to register the sights and sounds of Leonard's world with pinpoint sharpness. And it's at this point that Nolan mentions specifically the influence of Borges on the story with, with Funes, the Memorius, because Nolan says he took the clarity away from it. And he goes on to say, Borges talks about how crystal clear everything is. The sense of tactility of physicality from that short story is very important to Memento. And he's talked about how he used that to create a connection with the audience. The more physical the connection, the more you can do with it as a storyteller. And then he references how Leonard talks about like talking about his sense memory as a way to explain, like, I don't have short term memory, but I still know that like, if I knock on wood, I know how it's going to sound. If I pick up this glass, I know it's how it's going to feel. So they write, he's aware of the fact that his memory isn't working anymore. So he then treasures the way in which it does work. Leonard's sense memory is his only proof that he exists, the one slim tether holding his identity in place. So I thought it was cool to see that that influence specifically mentioned. And I could really feel that too, because in the book they also have the the still of Natalie like running her hand down Leonard's chest to look at the tattoos. And there's a few other places where like, yeah, you really get that the feel of it. You can almost like put it between your fingers and and rub them together and feel it a little bit. So I think that worked really well. I don't know if you thought about that or, or noticed that at all. I have not. No, that was a completely new 
not new because I read it. <laughs> very, very new, new thought process. I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me. That was a good observation. Yeah. Yeah. I think outside of any other spare observations here, um, I haven't got too much else. Is there anything you wanted to mention before we say who we should believe? Nah, I'm good. We can keep going to the next one. Well, I will say I did notice kind of like the psycho overtones with, with Leonard's wife being wrapped up in that shower curtain. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the cuts to the attack on them in their apartment kind of like intensify the fear that we get to meet in following with someone breaking in and going through your stuff. This one kind of doubles down and goes deeper on that. <laughs> and then I kept thinking about while I was reading the script that Teddy's obsession with the Jag, with the car, <laughs> he keeps mentioning oh, it yeah. on other viewings. I thought, ah, oh, he's just greedy. He's like, it's a nice car. Let me have it. But then I finally realized, oh no, he's, he keeps talking about the car because he needs to get rid of it. It's a, yeah. it's a problem. So let's get rid of that. And, oh, and finally the, the black and white sequences, they're not just a device for like telling you these are two different timelines and eventually we're going to join them, but it's a framing device for showing us here's how Teddy has helped Leonard build up his case before. And the other things that Teddy says they've done together mm -hmm. and how it points out how Leonard's facts to himself, his tattoos can be unreliable because when he's talking on the phone to Leonard in those black and white sequences, Leonard gets that piece of information that Teddy feeds him. So he changes his tattoo. He's, he's going to write access to drugs. But right before that, Teddy says something to him. He's like, wait a minute. No, he's a drug dealer. So he's putting these tattoos on himself, but they're not necessarily totally reliable facts. Right. So that I guess that kind of leads into let's talk about it. Let's what, what do we have to say? Would you? like to go first on this with our grand theories or grand unifying theories sure um i suppose should we perhaps mention what tom Schoen theorized in the book first as it may be a jumping off point yeah yeah go ahead basically what he says he describes natalie sending leonard off to take care of dodd who's either an enforcer or somebody you know who was looking for jimmy's drug money or, or the drugs that he was supposed to have had. So yeah. Leonard hairs off to wreak his revenge for something he did. So Natalie tells Leonard that Dodd hit her, but it was actually Leonard who hit her. So Leonard yeah. goes to take care of Dodd. So a big clue to where the story is ultimately headed. <laughs> and he goes on to say, that, you know, since Teddy's telling him everything that he did, that it was actually Leonard who killed his own wife with the Sammy Jenkins thing. Like you actually did that. There was no Sammy. You're the person, the wife who had diabetes and you're the one who had the condition. You're the one who shot her up full of insulin and killed her. We've done this a million mm -hmm. times before and basically shows like, yeah, viewed through that angle, you get the, all the, the Nolan themes of guilt and regret and repression. And that's the way to view it. And then he tries in his interviews with Nolan, he's like, this is my theory. Like it's the one that works, right? Leonard thinks he's innocent, but he's not. And Nolan pushes back, well, he never said he was innocent, but that he's, um, and he's not totally believable either. But Tom Schoen is trying to get Nolan to tell him, like, I'm right, right? And that leads to the discussion <laughs> about ambiguity and things like that. And has Nolan point him back to watch the prestige with the you want to be fooled kind of thing. And then Schoen notes how he rewatched it as instructed the prestige. And he sees the scene of 
Hugh Jackman's Robert Angier character refusing to believe the simple explanation of what Michael Caine's cutter tells him about Alfred Borden's transported or yeah, the transported man trick. He's like, he's using a double. It's obvious. That's the only way to do it. And Angier refuses to believe him. But that's turns out to be what it is. So Angier's looking for something to be more complicated than it is. And Cutter's like, no, it's this simple. And it turns out he is right. It is this simple. So that's what the book says about it. So maybe we can keep that in mind. Maybe we could we can try to apply the prestige test while we discuss this, discuss the the final determination of reality. Not really. That's a, <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, what do you think? Who do you believe? What do you want to believe, Jake? What I want to believe, because I do see what he wrote in the book, right? Like, it does depend on how tragic or how ironic you want the ending to be. Because if you read it as if Sammy's not real and the events depicted in that flashback uh, narrative is actually what happened to Leonard and he accidentally shot his wife up too many times killed her then that's one tragic because that means that not only did he do that to his wife but then he's just been used and reused by teddy and everyone else because teddy is just being like oh well he's not gonna remember this i can get him to help us do whatever we need and so then the tragedy becomes not only did he accidentally kill his wife and he remembers that, but only partly because he's memory blocked all of it out. But he also can't remember how many people he's killed for this guy that is supposedly saying that he's going to help him find his wife's killer. When in reality, his wife's killer's him, and he just can't deal with it. Yeah. Which is a really sad, tragic ending for his character. Yeah. But if you go the other way and believe Leonard where the thing that happened was uh, Sammy was indeed real and he did deny that claim, but then still deals with the fact that his wife was brutally murdered right in front of him. And then he's still out of the hunt for revenge. But while he's doing that, he is still getting manipulated like in either timeline. He's getting manipulated. It's just which way he not feels about it. Cause he can't remember it's uh because if you if you believe that Sammy was not real, Sammy was actually Leonard in that scenario, then it's just he's been unwittingly used over and over and over again. But then later, if he still ended up getting the guy who killed his wife, he's still being used over and over again. He's gotten his revenge already. He just doesn't remember it. It's the same thing. Like, what good is it if you don't remember your revenge and then oh well i i'll still know because it will be the action still happened and i got my revenge but he doesn't remember it if you take the interpretation that he that sammy really was real and he was uh fake so i don't know i want to you want leonard to be the hero yeah you want want the optimistic interpretation you want the optimistic interpretation despite everything Again, like it's the psycho following uh, protagonist thing that that he does where you want the protagonist of the story to come out on top, even though that person is probably terrible. And in this case, definitely killed at least one person. Who knows how many more people he's killed. 
two for sure actually but yeah, yeah two for sure for sure but then you don't know however many more that is and he doesn't know either so you're still cheering for someone who killed the wrong guy once maybe the wrong guy twice who knows i want the optimistic version but i think my my heart of hearts says that sammy was not real and that it actually was leonard and then this whole thing is just him trying to come to terms with it and not being able to do that sure sure and i wouldn't you know necessarily argue with anybody who like was shown who says that that's the case and that's what really happened but i want to believe that leonard's like this has a not a happy ending but <laughs> some closure and i'm still gonna believe that yeah yeah, yeah. and i'll uh yeah. i'll tell you why but i mainly disagree with tom Schoen's interpretation first of all because if i read it right if you go with his view of things you have to take like everything all of it that teddy says at face value and we know that everything that teddy says just isn't true not every single word not every little thing there are some things he tries to mess around with leonard saying take this car and leonard's like no this is my car holds up the jaguar like or at least the car they're going to drive in and then he lies to leonard about being a cop at one point says he's a snitch instead so yeah you have to say maybe try to pick out the things that teddy is saying which parts are true and which ones aren't but i listed out i went bit by bit here i listed out facts i mm-hmm. stopped short of doing tattoos but i listed out some facts it seems pretty reasonable to assume like that leonard's wife definitely dead whether john g yeah. did it or whether he did it himself we absolutely know well we know that leonard's memory in the short term is not reliable but also his long-term memory is not reliable either we're shown that it's not entirely ironclad and then like you had that flash of him being in the home and not sammy just for like that briefest of seconds but the flip side of that is so that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the guy instead of sammy in that story because there's also the flash of him like i mentioned earlier at the end as he's driving it shows him lying on the bed cuddling with his wife and he's got all of his tattoos so that means that those flash cuts any of them are neither reliable nor objective. So everything we see, all the info right. we have, that's from Leonard's point of view. And even his tattoos right. aren't 100% reliable, like I said just no. a little while ago. The only thing we know is reliable, which also kind of is like touched on in the book in general, is the photos, because the camera don't lie. You know, Nolan talks about the tyranny of the projector. No. There's a quote in the book from Raymond Chandler talking about the film Lady in the Lake, which tried to the adaptation where they tried to shoot it in first person so there's the actor who plays marlo is only seen when he looks in the mirror and everything like the lady kissing you is coming in and kissing the camera things like that and it didn't go over very well so raymond chandler talked about it as the concept being you know i know one fellow who wanted to make the camera the murderer which wouldn't work without an awful lot of fraud the camera is too honest so leonard has some polaroids that we can have to review so let's let's look at those he has we have the photo of him pointing to his chest after he purportedly killed the actual john g that photo has been destroyed took a photo of his truck Mm -hmm. that's his truck that he drives around at some point yet the picture of teddy in front of leonard's truck which you could ask the question why doesn't leonard already have a photo of teddy if they've been working together for a year so that throws that into question although you could say teddy could keep taking the photos and destroying them still 
got Jimmy's dead body. That photo was destroyed. You got the Jag. You got a picture of Natalie, the discount in and died. And finally, Teddy's dead body, which might be the most important photo for all of this. I think I got all the photos. Can't remember if I left any out. So from all that, I think my summary of it is that we're meant to judge the whole thing through Leonard's point of view. It's almost certainly not reliable, but I think what Leonard ends up believing is the most important thing here personally than what the objective truth is because his experience and his perception is just, it is what it is. There's no, he doesn't have a sense of the the bigger picture. He's not going to remember it. You kind of also see the, a little bit of this in inception at the very end. And no one even talked about the endings of those tied those together. Cause you get with that one, you have Cobb. The big question is, well, is he still dreaming or not? But the thing is, it doesn't matter because he's finally in a place where he's with his kids and he's at peace and he doesn't care anymore. So, right. Like, right. Which is the point of that ending, not the exactly top, but yeah. Yeah. The top is there to just, just frustrate you. So yes, applying this to Leonard's situation, what I finally came up with, and here's, here's my, my grand conclusion, whether the intruders killed Leonard's wife or whether he did still, he, there was an attack on him. Somebody, screwed him up and either killed or attacked his wife and she survived. So I think it's to me, I think we can pretty reasonably assume, well, I'm choosing to believe Leonard did get his revenge with that first one with what Teddy's telling him, but Teddy's been using him since then. So Leonard closes this loop to maybe somewhat atone for any of the other people he's possibly killed by killing Teddy. And presumably he won't get in the same loop with Natalie because he has that photo of him killing Teddy which implies with that flash cut that does say show he has the tattoo saying I've done it implies he will get the tattoo that tells him he's totally finished. And the fact that he's broken out of that loop, he has gotten his revenge. doesn't matter whether he knows about it, according to him. And then he's gotten rid of the person who's turned him into a killer, which he doesn't want. He's broken out of that. And so Assuming he documents that fact and he can finally put that tattoo on his chest and he can see it all the time, then to me, that means Leonard's kind of like freed himself as much as he can. And from his point of view, that's all that really matters. Ta-da. <laughs> so did we just, did we do it? Did we figure it out? I feel like I've, I've come up with something that puts me at peace and I can, Anybody can disagree with me, and that's fine, because there's so many different ways this can go. But that interpretation makes sense to me. I spent so much time thinking about it, and I'm good with it. So there we are. <laughs> we made it. We did it. We can do our letterbox reviews now. That's our reward. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see here. I already kind of mentioned one that I had earlier when I talked about how sad and funny it was i was surprised that someone else said that as well let me pull up my link here (laughs) yeah so my (laughs) i think i found maybe the one uh the one one line funny review for this movie because everything else was just talking about how yeah it's a good it's classic it deserves to be taught as such and thought of in that way and then this one is from fran hopner and she said it's a bunch of smiley faces but it's the closed parentheses and then it's the colon and then it says, movie the like backwards is review this. Ooh. <laughs> so, 
Oh, um, well done. Well so done. That was funny. All backwards to say this review is backwards like the movie. Um, <laughs> I like that because that's it's exactly the way the movie is because it is backwards and you have to go backwards in order to understand it. But you read from left to right, even though you're going back from right to left. So it's kind of mimicking the way that you have to watch the movie in order to get it. So that's pretty funny. That was the best one that I had seen. And the one that I got, I think, I think I got, it was funny to me. <laughs> and it's from Amaya, who is at Elementary with two I's at the end instead of a Y. Me, IRL, watching this going from, oh, I got it, to, wait, shit, I don't, back to, wait, yes, that's it, it all makes sense, to, no, fuck, I have never been so lost again, and it's a rewatch. There you go. That's true, yeah, it's, that is true. That's the movie right there. Yeah. That's, that's definitely how I felt the last time I watched it, I was trying to think, oh, man, how am I going to make heads or tails of this? As evidenced by my, my not remembering the main plot point to this thing, so. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that the truth? I did find another one that I think is another funny one. I'll, I'll try to put this one up against yours from Maria, who is at Tarantulini. And <laughs> they write Finding Dory plus 50 first dates plus Inception equals Memento. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Throwing that in there. You know, when you mentioned Finding Dory or even Finding Nemo, when you think of Dory, I'd forgotten she's a, a character that has enterograde amnesia, so you could make your memory bracket for film characters and, and put them up against each other and see who's better. I don't know. I don't know who I'd say. That's funny. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that we forgot? Uh, or remember yeah, where where or where forgot were to we? remember where was I? I don't remember know. to forget. Um, <laughs> now where were we? Where I was forgot I? to remember to forget to forget. Um, <laughs> I think that pretty much covers it. We got uh, everything here for everything else, and I think the the book especially does a really good job of delving into all the stuff here. We talked about the ending and Sean's interpretation of that ending. The last thing I'll say, especially something that the book touched on which kind of loops back to where i started it with was the um the way that it kind of set the tone for all these puzzle box movies to come forward and started was the biggest one of that trend really but the book talks about how especially around 99 to y2k you got a lot of those types of movies which i think does speak to the cultural idea at the time of of everyone kind of wondering what our reality is, like what's going to happen, you know, when we hit January 1st, 2000, are the computer's going to turn over and we're all going to die. Um, right, right. What's the world going to be like? So what truly is our reality? So you had a lot of stuff like that, like this, the matrix existence, uh, fight club, everything kind of around all that same time dealing with, how we interact with the world and whether or not it's real and whether or not it's going to go away at some point. So it's interesting to just kind of look back and see that that's kind of the headspace we were all in at that time point. Right. Right. Oh man, you're putting that as your final thought where I'm just thinking, I hope I made Chris Nolan proud with my interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> it was better than mine where I was like, I hope that he didn't, but I don't know, maybe like, that's the the seeing both sides of the same coin the aspect of me that comes out a little too much but 
Um, I had, yeah, to, it's definitely I had to have an answer those. for myself, just like in and <laughs> I couldn't just leave it that way. So, yeah, it's definitely one of those where the more you watch it, I feel like you could probably come away with a different interpretation or a different stance on it each time. Another movie. Have you seen or heard the uh, the Broadway soundtrack for the last five years? Nope. Have you heard about that one? I have not. So it's a it's a play about a couple that is breaking up, except her version of events is playing backwards from the breakup back to when they first met. His songs are playing forwards from when they first met to when they break up. It's a temporal pincher musical. And the only yes, and the only time <laughs> that they intersect is in the middle when they get married. And so once you finally get to the end, I think her song is the penultimate song and then his song is the final one. So hers is really, really happy because it's the first time that they've met. And then that's immediately followed up with him realizing that she's leaving and the fallout from all of that. But that musical too is is something that deals with... Um, the intersection of that and kind of playing around with the time loop narrative and everything. And so that even in a Broadway musical medium, it's there too. I, I forget the date for that one, but it's one of those ones where the more you listen to it, if you listen to it on a first listen, there are some objective uh, moments into it where you're like, this person definitely is the reason why they broke up. This action is what led to it. And then the second time you listen to it, you can kind of start to say like, well, maybe it was both of them at the same time. Maybe they just weren't ready for the relationship or what, maybe something just didn't work out right. And then the third time you listen to it, it can almost like flip your entire perspective on who's to blame. Or even if there's a point in trying to assign blame to someone for that, because it's you know such a complicated thing. But yeah, very much like Memento in that you could watch it multiple times and come away with a different ambiguous interpretation of the ending every time. Good. Well, thanks yeah. for the bonus recommendation. Always <laughs> good to have that. And then where can people find us, Jake? Uh, yeah, you can find us at friends at dusk pod on Instagram and just at friends at dusk on Twitter. And I am at Jake Harris four on Instagram and Twitter. And then I'm at 808 Jake underscore on letterboxd. And where can they find you, Marshall? I am on Instagram at marshall.doig on Twitter at Marshall Doig and on Letterboxd at mdoig. So if y'all could please like and subscribe, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please uh, do. Hopefully my my interpretation of Memento has enlightened everyone and we are all in agreement now and that's all worth five stars. <laughs> and, uh, that is the absolute yeah. truth that it's five stars. <laughs> yes. Um, and you can find all the list of our resources, uh, all the books we've referenced, all the movies we've talked about in the show notes. And next time we are going to be discussing insomnia and all of the influences leading up to that movie. Yeah. It's an exciting new chapter <laughs> to look at where It'll we be go the from. first, uh, yeah, the first big budget movie that he really gets to do with a studio blessing after becoming, you know, the next big thing with Memento. So it's, we'll get to see what happens when he gets a, a big studio budget and some more Hollywood stars. So it'll be a, a good time to, to look at that and dive into. Yeah. So we'll see you then and that'll do it for us. 
We'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye. We all need mirrors to remind ourselves who we are. I'm no different. <laughs>